Let me begin our time by reading our passage. I'll pray, and then we're going to jump into this uh, story about the life of Joseph. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, uh, brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From that time he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put me and has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not is he not greater in this house than I am? Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See how he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard it, that I lifted up my voice and he cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got me out of the house. Then she, then she laid up his garment by her, by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is why your servant treated me. His anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come before your word with humble hearts, knowing, God, that on our own, we can do nothing. God, we, we need your spirit, God, to work in our hearts. So I pray, Lord, that we would not take a familiar passage like this one and gaze over it and, and um, God, rehearse our own stories into it, Lord. But we pray that you would let your word speak to us in a way that is for our good and for your glory. God, ultimately, we want to pray all these things for the glory and honor of Jesus, who is our king. We pray that we'd honor him in this time. Amen. Um, I'll, I'll begin with the story, which is like textbook 101. The teaching and preaching class never say that, but I, I did anyways. Um, uh, there's a guy named Ben. He works at a computer software company, maybe even Microsoft or Amazon, whatever you want to have it. And Ben, um, kind of a well-known guy in his high school and uh, kind of partied a little bit in college, partied a little bit more, uh, really had a habit for drinking beer, 
but Ben, you know, um, kind of normal guy, met this girl on the internet. They kind of out of a whim got married. And uh, one day he was in his office and he was kind of just um, talking about how his life wasn't really going down the path he wanted. And he's talking to his friend Chris and Chris was just listening. Chris was a Christian. And uh, Ben just kind of said, man, my marriage, like it started off really good and we loved each other. So we just got married. But now it's just kind of cold and distant. And a lot of people at work think I'm just like that kind of goofy kid who just gets drunk at staff parties. And, you know, I, I just, I really just kind of feel like I'm, I'm sad all the time. Nothing's really kind of going the way I thought it would. And Chris takes this opportunity to, to say to his buddy Ben and say, hey, Ben, I think I, think I know what you need. You need Jesus. I, I know, you know, you probably heard the religious thing before, but let me just tell you something, Ben. Like, Jesus will make your life happy. Your li- Matter of fact, Ben, if you follow Jesus, your life will get better. It'll get better. Do you want to just try to come to church with me? And so Ben kind of agreed and liked what he was, his friend Chris was saying and uh, kind of a few weeks later decides to become a Christian, begins to try to get his life together, try to, you know, stop drinking as much, maybe starts trying to incorporate some things into his marriage and, you know, um, kind of some time goes by and he's trying his best to follow Jesus. But then one day his wife decides that she wants to leave him. And she just kind of said, hey, you just... You drink too much still. You can't. There's nothing here. I should never married you. And takes the kid and leaves. A few months later, Ben's just so sad and depressed, not working hard. He's got performance reviews saying he needs to improve his work. Doesn't improve, and so he's let go. Right. More than that, Ben is kind of pushed away any of the old friends he has because he became a Christian. He's trying to change, and those friends feel slighted by him, and so he finds himself. Broke, miserable, lonely. And his main thought is this. Chris told me that if I followed Jesus, my life would get better. That's a hypothetical story, but a story of one I've heard many times of people who eventually walk away from the Lord because they were promised that if you follow Jesus, your circumstances will get better. Your life will get, you'll be more happy. You'll be more happy. And it's interesting, all the... My wife sent me an article this week, um, and a guy started an Instagram page of all of the sneakers that are over $1,000 worn by preachers. So it was just an Instagram page of pictures of pastors wearing shoes that cost more than $1,000. And uh, I think it was like Huffington Post article, which is very liberal, uh, saying people are having existential crises over this Instagram page of pastors wearing Shoes over a thousand dollars, right? And it seems it's interesting to me that the the preachers or the ministers or whatever they call themselves, um, the ones that promise the most happiness, the most financial success, the most God is for your good, are the ones who seem to pray the most and benefit financially. And the question for us, and I think we have to be just true to what Genesis is trying to teach us is what do we do when we find ourselves in situations where for one minute we're doing pretty good, but the next minute, man, life is just really hard. You know, you think about Joseph and his story, it's really sad, his brothers sell him, right? Like, I'm not, you don't own me, right? I, I, slavery is just so barbaric, but he gets sold, but then something happens. He prospers in Potiphar's house. 
And there's probably times where he probably even forgot he was a slave or he was given so much privilege, so much cause, so much merit that he pretty much ran the house. He was telling other people what to do. But then we see him fall all the way back down to prison. Does God just promise us a better life, better circumstances? Is it good to tell people that if you follow Jesus, your life will be better? I think it's fine, but what do we mean by better? And so really the question I want to talk about tonight is is what does it really look like to have God's blessing? What does it look like when we say, if you follow God, you'll live a blessed life, right? Psalm 1, one of my favorite psalms, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but rather his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water who yields fruit in season and out of season, and his leaf does not wither. Not so are the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away, right? Clearly I know Psalm 1 a little bit, right? Um, What does it look like to have a blessed life? Because here we see in the story of Joseph that God is faithful to him, not just when life is going good, but when life is going bad as well. Did you, did you catch up on the observation that was repeated over and over again? What did it say? The Lord was with Joseph, but the Lord was with him, but the Lord was with him, right? And so guys, if, if, we, if you want a main point, if you like main points, here it is. God is faithful to his people in times of blessings and in times of adversity. God is faithful in times of blessing and adversity. And what I really want to do is spend time thinking and talking and working through this text of of what does it mean that God blesses us? What does it mean that God is faithful to us by blessing us? Because let me tell you, I want to tell you this. This is good. God does want to bless you. The problem is we interpret that blessing to think only good things, only circumstantial, only more money, only better health reports, only better friendships, right? Only better careers and college acceptance. That's how we want to interpret blessing. But really, here's what Genesis 39 is teaching us, that God's blessing to us is seen in good times and in bad times. So first point I want to make to you is that God's blessing is not primarily seen in good circumstances. Let me repeat that point, okay? God's blessing is not primarily seen in good good circumstances. Now, let me tell you something. God's blessing can, at times, be good circumstances. But when we talk about blessed is the man, who, by the way, Psalm 1, can only be about one man, the only person to delight day and night on the word of the Lord, Jesus himself, right? But that blessing, what does that look like? Sometimes it does mean financial prosperity, a good bill of health, you know, friendships, relationships, clout, merits. But we want to say as Christians that it's not primarily those things. So what's really interesting um, in Joseph's life here, we mentioned already last week how God is going to work through what, what his brothers meant for evil. God intended for good. That we, we, we see the whole arc of the story already, kind of leading towards the climax. But in this story, we are told, if you look down in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. 
he was elevated to a place of good position. Let me tell you something. Before he came to Egypt, he was a shepherd's boy, right? He was the littlest brother of a bunch of jerks who didn't like him, right? So even though he gets sold into slavery, when the Lord is with him, he promotes him to a place where I bet Joseph, I won't lie to you, was probably like, man, I kind of like him in Egypt a little better, Right? Like, I, I know I miss my, my family and all that stuff, but I'm sure he had all the wine. I'm sure he had all the good clothes for, as a slave. He was someone who really received the blessing of God. And so we could just kind of think and say, you know, I could preach a point to you. God blessed Joseph because he worked hard, because he had integrity, because he did all the right things. And all those things are true, but, but here's the thing. We also see in this story how he falls. And do me a favor, look at the very bottom of the chapter, verse 23. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Do me a quick favor. Keep your finger on Genesis 39, but flip open to Psalm 105. Psalm 105. Psalm 105 is a, is a pretty um, long psalm. It's all about the history of Israel. And so, really interesting, in Psalm 105, verse 17, we get our boy Joseph referenced, right? And here is the reference. Psalm 105, beginning in verse 17. We'll actually start in verse 16. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Now look at verse 18. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. We quickly want to talk about how quickly Joseph, when he went to prison, elevated the ranks. But think for a second. He was unjustly accused of wrongdoing. And instead of defending himself, he takes the punishment, and there's a collar of iron put around his neck and fetters put on his feet. He suffered. He suffered. Today, while scrolling the unfortunate world of Facebook, though, I found a video of a pastor. And uh, it just, it shocks me. It shocks me. Uh, I guess it's, it's, it's interesting in a sense because he's sitting there accusing people like me of doing so much harm to people. But he's, he's saying this. How dare pastors, people in the pulpits, like what I'm doing, tell people that God is in control? How barbaric. How much hurt they bring to people telling that God is in control. And he, he went on to describe all the, the hunger of children and trafficking and disease. God is in control you see, in essence, he was saying this. You cannot reconcile the doctrine of God's love with God's sovereignty. I just, uh, I struggle. What a low view of God you have. What a low view of God you have. I mean, th- think of Job, like, his, you know, his, all his family dies, everything is taken away, and his wife says, curse God and die. Right? Probably the reaction of all of us, the cynics would fall into despair when bad things happen. Job says, do we accept the good things of God and not the bad things? 
Now, Joseph could look at the evil done to him and say, no, 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 what you intended for evil, God intended for good. See, here's the, here's the thing, guys. We know as Christians what the Bible is teaching us here in this passage about how Joseph went from rags to riches and riches to rags is that God blesses us not just in circumstances, but he blesses us by taking all of these hard things that happen to us and he uses it for our good. God is so sovereign, so in control, that somehow he can take all of the chaos and all of the misery and all of the sin and all of the brokenness and dysfunction of life and say, I'm still going to use it for your good and for my glory. That is a God I want to praise and worship. A God who's not in control, why even come to you then? Why even come to you? There's this uh, book I like to read a lot, and um, I kind of got away from it for a while, but uh, I don't know, maybe the Lord put it in my heart to start reading it again, and, and I've been skipping through it, but um, this guy talks about perspective and trials. He says this, more than anything else I could ever do, the gospel enables me to embrace my tribulations and thereby position myself to gain full benefit from them. So he's saying, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, I can look at my trials and actually begin to benefit from them. For the gospel is the one great permanent circumstance in which I live and move, and every hardship in my life is allowed by God only because, listen, it serves his gospel purposes in me. You hear what he says? Every hardship in my life is allowed by God. That sounds like God's in control. I realize this guy thinks like me, though. When I view my circumstances in this light, I realize that the gospel is not just one piece of good news that fits into my life somewhere among all the bad. I realize instead that the gospel makes me genuinely good news out of every other aspect of my life, including my severest trials. The good news about my trials is that God is forcing them to bow to his gospel purposes and do good unto me by improving my character and making me more conformed to the image of Christ. And so therefore, preaching the gospel to myself each day provides a lens through which I can view my trials in this way and see the true cause for rejoicing that exists in them. See what he's saying here? It's the same thing that Genesis 39 is teaching us. That blessing comes through trials and circumstances. It's really easy to look at this passage and talk about a very relevant topic for high schoolers. Sexual morality. Look at this little passage here, right? Perfect, chalked up, teed up for you illustration of what to do for sexual morality, right? And it's tempting even for me to say like, hey, look what Joseph does. When he's tempted with sexual morality, what does he do? He flees. You should flee too. But let me say something here. This passage is not about sexual morality. It's about how God is blessing his people in faithful times and in hard times. Now, really quick, there's a story right before Genesis 39. We didn't have time to go over it, but I'll briefly explain it to you. It says in chapter 38, Judah and Tamar. Now, if you remember the name Judah, that was the fourth son of Leah. And through Judah, we know, comes the, the, the lines, right? If you read Genesis 38, though, let me tell you something. Judah was a loser. Man. He's bad. And I almost don't want to read it because it is probably the most sexual 
kind of um, in, intense chapter in all of Genesis, right? So I'll give you a quick thing, okay? So Judah, he's the dude who says, hey, man, let's profit after Joseph. Let's sell the dude, right? So he's greedy. So right after this, though, Judah, after they sell Joseph, he sees his dad mourning. He's like, yo, too sad for me. Peace out. I'm going. And he gets a Canaanite wife, okay? Now, he has three sons right away. Boom, boom, boom. That also serves the purpose of showing how much time has elapsed for Joseph in Egypt. Okay? So he has three sons, and the first son, he gets a wife for his son. Thing they did back in ancient Near East culture, and her name is Tamar. Now, his son dies. Okay? Now, here's the thing in the text, Genesis 38, we hear that his son was evil and did wicked in the sight of the Lord, and that's why he died. But Judah, being the loser that he is, is like, oh, you're bad luck, right? So he kind of says, okay, well, technically, uh, middle son, uh, go sleep with your uh, former brother's wife in order to give him kids, kind of a weird cultural tradition. And this dude is really weird, so he has sex with her, but he doesn't kind of seal the deal. Um, If you want to read that, go for it. Um, It's in the Bible, right? Remember, like, the first thing of Bible college, people were like, all right, Genesis 38, verse this. What do you think this means, right? Really weird, I know. But in essence, um, God's line is going to be preserved. And so God puts the second son to death because he did what was evil and wicked in the Lord, okay? So now Judah is all superstitious. Like, yo, that girl's bad news. Anyone who touches her dies. So to his third son, he's like, hey, yo, Tamar. My, 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 my third son here, he's just a boy, so give him a few years, and when he's ready, I'll send him your way. But for now, why don't you just go back to hang out at your dad's house? Okay? Now, Tamar, a few years later, sees Judah and the third son and knows that he's lying to her. So she dresses up as a prostitute. She kind of tricks him in to sleeping with her, right? Takes his uh, staff and his sign, right? And then Judah finds out that his former a daughter-in-law is pregnant. And he says, kill her. Not just kill her, burn her at the stake. Like, dude, you are such a loser. I can do whatever I want sexually. I can sleep with a prostitute. But oh, you have your own little thing? Burn her. Wow, dude, wow. Okay, so let me just tell you why that chapter exists, okay? Why that chapter exists. I don't have time to go over it, but I'll say a few things, Okay. It is a parallel account to Joseph. It is a way to show Joseph's faithfulness compared to his loser brother Judah. Judah married a Canaanite woman. Joseph resisted a Canaanite woman. Okay? Um, Judah was sexually immoral. Joseph was sexually moral. Okay? Uh, Judah was called out justly by a woman. Joseph was called unjustly by a woman. Right? Judah confesses his sin. Joseph rejects sin. It is, it, is, it is all a picture of how Joseph really is being faithful in the hardest of times when his brother Judah isn't. And there's a neat story that ultimately Tamar has twins. And if you read the genealogy of Matthew 1, ultimately through a Canaanite woman who proposes as a prostitute and deceits her father-in-law, even through that woman, the seed of the woman, ultimately in the seed of Christ comes. So it's interesting how you think for a second that Israelites would look at someone like Rahab, a Canaanite woman, 
and be suspicious of her, but read a story about a Canaanite woman who also did some things and how God still used her. Kind of a neat story, but I say all of that because of this point. That God's blessings to us don't just happen because we're faithful, because we do the right thing. That's what we're called to do, yes. But ladies, listen, God wants to bless us, but that is not primarily seen in good circumstances. And so really, here's how this is going to be flushed out. God is going to test us in times of adversity. God is going to see what kind of faith is there. And really, in Genesis 37 and 38, we are being presented. Are we going to be someone like Joseph who rejects sin, who follows the Lord, who trusts God, even when my circumstances aren't good? Or are we going to be someone like Judah? So I know it's kind of long for this point, but let me just wrap it up here a little bit. It is tempting when things start not going our way to look at God a little suspiciously. Like we said last week, God, where are you? What are you doing? But ultimately, guys, here's what we have to remember. God is with us even when things aren't going the way we thought they would go. And we're called to be faithful in the midst of adversity. Second point is this, that God's blessing is to be, to be received as a gift, to be received as a gift. Look at verse 21 with me. Well, actually, we'll start in verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servants treated me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The point I want to make um, in this point is for us to know that in times of adversity, the way in which we, I think, receive God's blessing is to realize that any good circumstance that you have enjoyed in your life is a gift. Is a gift. And so in essence, I think the bar that we are being asked to come under here is how do we keep our integrity? How do we keep a life of moral purity and a good conscience when we have times of adversity? The temptation for all of us is to think that if I do good things, good things will happen to me. And if I do bad things, bad things will happen to me. See, but let me just give you the best principle that I could tell you. I'll make this point a little short. God doesn't owe you one single thing except your judgment. Seems a little fire and brimstone, doesn't it? But it's very true. Let me tell you something. God doesn't need to give you anything in your life. He doesn't even need to give you your next breath. He doesn't need to give you your dreams of having a good career or being married one day. God doesn't deserve you to give you anything other than what is rightfully due to you, your judgment for your sin. But... He gives us mercy. 
He gives us grace. He forgives our sins. Jesus takes the penalty. He takes the punishment of all the wrongdoing we have. But can I say something, guys? Other than that, God does not owe me the ability to make over $100,000 in a year. God does not owe me the ability to be able to enjoy the game of golf. God does not owe me good health, healthy kids, good kids in a youth group who want to learn about Christ. You see, when we have this understanding that, that God, why aren't you doing this for me? God, why aren't you helping me? We really begin to think that God is someone who actually, you've done something to deserve this. And when we can remember that God doesn't owe me anything, but he has given me mercy, we can have the mindset that we can actually serve God when things don't go our way because we have already been given so much more. And you know what also this should do for our hearts? That when things do go our way, when life is all the roses we imagined it would be, which hopefully it is for you, who should we thank for that? But God, see, even in the midst of his adversity, what was God doing? Blessing him, helping him. You know, we, we as the readers here are omniscient to the life of Joseph. We know what's going on. Even the narrator is, is omniscient a little bit. Like, but Joseph doesn't know this. He's blind as a bat. And if we think that, that God is just going to bless us because we're just awesome, we completely misunderstand God. And so two things should happen in our hearts. One, in humility, we should come before God in moments of adversity and just say, God, I don't deserve for any of this to be fixed. You know, in, in Luke 19, it says, the, you know, even after the cross, like, the best we can be called is beggars. You know, Martin Luther on his deathbed wrote a little line. He couldn't even talk anymore. He was dying of pneumonia. And he writes down the words, we are beggars. This is true. Because we are needy sinners. And so ultimately, guys, this story is a good example of how to maintain integrity and purity in the midst of adversity. And here's what we should remember. That even though we don't deserve it, God is faithful to us in times that are good and also in times that are bad. What a, like, what a faithful God we serve who gives us so much more than we deserve. Something You know, I don't know about you, but I grew up praying after every meal. And sometimes, I, you know, sadly, like, I'll go to, like, Taco Bell for lunch or something like that. And I get fast food and I forget to pray, right? And I think, like, later that day, like, Oh, dang, I didn't pray for my food, right? Maybe there's, like, some neurotic there or whatever, but, you know, it's typically when I am asked to pray for a meal, something that I always mention in my prayers that I think you should too. It's, God, thank you that you've given us so much more than we need. Thank you that you've given us so much more than I deserve. Not only do I have your mercy and your grace and your love, you have given me this meal. You are the provider of everything. And so God's blessings, guys, listen, if, if you received a good birthday present or if you have a loving family, if you have warm friends, if, if you have a desire to achieve academically, if you love working hard in your sport, thank God for that gift. God's blessings to be received 
as a gift because grace teaches us to know that it is a gift from God to be received with thankfulness, not something to be earned. So if you ever have someone saying, if you really want God to bless you, you better give, understand the terms. Because because here's what I'd say. God does want to bless you. But here's the thing. He blesses those in order that they, this is my third point, can be used to glorify God. God's blessing in our lives should be used to glorify God. I um, was recently listening to um, a pastor talk about tithing. Uh, if you don't know what tithing is, it's like a Christian biblical word talking about giving. And so, in essence, he, he was saying that a lot of people talk about tithing where if you give to God, he's going to bless you, right? And that's interpreted to mean, all right, if I do my part, if I give God my money, then he's going to bless me even more, okay? Now, the problem I have with that as a Christian is that is not biblical. That is treating God like a cosmic vending machine, right? That is treating God not the ways I'm saying here, where if I give God, he's going to give me better circumstances. But I liked what he said. There is a truth in which God will bless those who give generously. Here's why. In order that they can give even more. Because any blessing that we receive as Christians, any good favor that you have been given by God is to be a means or an instrument to be used for greater glory to God. You see, what's interesting here, if you look down at chapter 39, verse 3, it says this, His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Verse 21, But the Lord was with him, was with Joseph, and showed him steadfast love. In verse 22, And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge, like, there's a sense in which people would see Joseph and the blessing that God gave him and recognize, man, the Lord is with that guy. Joseph could have easily taken the blessing that God gave him and used it for his own glory, for his own means. But he became such a person that he resisted sin, that he walked in integrity. People said, man, this guy clearly is different than us. And so in essence here, the story about Joseph going from the Potiphar's house to prison is really a story about this. Contentment. You can maybe find it on YouTube, but there's this Joseph movie. Uh, I think Ben Kingsley is in it. He's Potiphar, if you know who that actor is. Um, and there's this scene where you see Joseph, right, when he gets put in prison, and it's like stormy, and there's like rain, lightning, and he puts his hands out. He just got whipped or something like that, and he puts his hands on this little bar, and it looks really sad, and he says, why me? Or, or like, God, where are you? And I think that's a kind of like the modern person, probably wasn't a Christian who made that film, thinking like, this is how anyone would feel. If you were sold by your brothers into slavery. There's a scene too in that movie in which um, Joseph looks at Potiphar and Potiphar looks at him right when his, uh, Potiphar's wife accused him and Potiphar looks at him and just kind of knows. He just knows that's probably not true. But his hands are tied. Because if he sits there and denies his wife, it just makes him look like a fool. 
And so Potiphar just looks at Joseph. God, man, <laughs> like, what do you do? Right, and all of that goes to serve this one thing, that Joseph being blessed by God was used by him to bring glory to God. So let me say something. If, if you are blessed by God in school, search for a way to make God look great in that. If God blesses you one day with financial success, praise the Lord. Don't use it to hoard it for yourself. Use it to serve the kingdom. If God blesses you relationally, oh, what a great opportunity to tap into those who feel lonely or distant. An invitation to invite them to the kingdom. The principle here is this. God blesses people not so that they can hoard things for themselves, but to learn to live lives in which they can glorify their heavenly father. God blesses those in order that they can give even more. And so a few questions for us, guys. What does your heart go to when you have times of adversity? What does your heart begin to lean on when you find yourself lonely and in despair? And I'm not saying that many of us can compare with the story of Joseph. Not many of us, I don't think, have been sold into slavery by our 11 brothers been falsely accused and thrown into prison and put an iron collar on her neck. But can I just say something? Like even sometimes waking up on the wrong side of the bed on Monday morning and just feeling off. If I'm even being honest, this application applies to me. Like I feel like just this weekend, just struggled with anxiety. It's kind of like that pit in your stomach, not really knowing what's wrong. My heart's kind of churning. Can't turn my mind off. You know, it's, it's interesting. As much as I tell people to believe the gospel more, I know that God is working for my good, but man, it's hard to believe that. It's like I know it, but do I believe it? And I struggle to like get my heart rate to come down. I struggle to talk to my wife because I'm so stuck in my thoughts and she knows something's wrong, but she doesn't know what to say. And, I, and I'm telling myself the right things, but it's not changing how I feel any differently. Now, even, even in those moments, sure, that doesn't compare to being sold into slavery. There's a sense in which I feel like some adversity. And, and I, and I kind of maybe mumble a few words to God, and I, and I kind of just speak. My normal, normative way in which I approach God is always like, I probably have something to confess. Like, God, I'm sure there's something here that I've done wrong. And I, and I just kind of stop for a second. I'm like, why is it... I, I always feel like I need to like loathe and woe is me and you know something and 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 what I I just think this passage helps me recognize is that even in those moments of anxiety even in moments where I just feel like even though I have a lot of people in my life who love me I still feel lonely even when I don't feel like I'm good at anything the Lord is faithful. He is with me to give me grace. Now think about the Israelites reading this passage. To hear that God is with them in the blessings, but also in the cursings. That God is not just with us when we are leaving 
Egypt, but he was with us during those 400 years of slavery. That God is not just with us when David is king and we're prospering, but he's also with us when we are exiled. God is not just with us when things are good. He is with us when times are bad because we have a faithful God. And ultimately, this story climaxes always in the story of Jesus. As a matter of fact, this story reminds me of a song, and maybe it's a poem too, that some of you might have heard, but Footprints in the Sand. There's this man who's walking with Jesus on a beach, and at the end of his life, he looks back at all these footprints, and for a while he sees his footprints and Jesus' footprints next to him, but at one point along his journey, he realizes there's only one set of footprints. And he asks Jesus, like, well, what happened here? Where were you during all these hard times of my life, Jesus? Like, I was walking alone. And Jesus looks at him and says, no, my son, this is the time where I had to pick you up and I carried you during these things. Isaiah 49, 15, great verse. Can a woman forget her nursing child? I love that imagery because I have watched my wife breastfeed four babies. Now, I have seen my wife nod off, fall asleep in the middle of the night, you know, midnight nursings, right? And so the, the prophet, now this is the Lord speaking to the prophet. He says, can a, can a woman forget her nursing child? Typically, no. It's a pretty intimate thing to do with another human being. That she should have no compassion on the center of her womb. And this is what the Lord says. Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Do you know what God is saying there? He's saying even the intimacy that a mother has with her nursing child, my love for you is even greater than that. Strangely, somehow God is with us even more during times of adversity. Romans 8, Matthew 28, Jesus gives a great commission. He says, behold, I am with you till the end of the age. Guys, listen. In Christ... We have all the blessings given to us. These blessings are not always primarily going to be seen in good circumstances. In fact, God is going to use adversity to actually bless us. And that is what we have to tell people. So if Chris is going to tell Ben, who's talking about his life and is not going the direction, say, hey, man, listen, I won't lie to you. Life can be hard at times. And surely I, I'm one person who can admit that I go through valleys and peaks all the time. But can I tell you one thing? That in the middle of my peak, I have a God who so loves me, cares for me, is after me, chases after me, sings after me, and I know that he loves me because he sent his one only son to die for me. That is what people need to hear. That God is not just out to give you the best life possible in terms of good circumstances, but he is giving you the best life possible in that he promises you resurrection and eternal life through his one and only son, Christ. And so in the story of Joseph, here's what we see. God is faithful to us in times of blessing and times of adversity. And he is blessing us by taking our adversity and making us into the image of his son. And he promises us, I will never forget you, that I am with you. But yeah, I'm sending you into the, to the lion's dens. I'm sending you into the fire. I'm sending you into a world in which Jesus says, blessed are you if you're persecuted for my name's sake. Blessed are you. We must always remember that God is working for our good. That even in the fire and in the storm, God desires to bless his people. Let's pray. Lord,
No one in this room is exempt, God, from, from suffering. God, at times we suffer in big ways, we suffer in small ways, God. Tomorrow morning, God, all of us are going to wake up, we're going to go to our jobs, we're going to go to school. And Lord, we carry things with us. We carry hardships, we carry secrets, we carry shame. But Lord, what, what a wonderful promise to reflect on that. God, you are with us in all of our adversities. God, you do not abandon us. Just as you were with Joseph, God, you were with us. You have given us your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, right now, my, my prayer for all of these students and these leaders, God, that they would just know, God, what the most shameful thing they've done in the last week. God, the most shameful thing they've done today or the most simple thing they've said or felt, Lord, that in Christ, it's, it's forgotten, it's forgiven. They no longer have to hold on to the shame that they feel over their sin. And Lord, we know all this is true because of what Jesus has done for us. And so, Lord, I pray that, that is the person you would direct our heart toward, that you would direct our affections towards, that, that ultimately it would be Jesus who we love, who we worship, and we serve. And so, God, help us to remember that you do desire to bless us. But, God, that blessing is that you take our adversity and you use it for our good to make us into the image of your Son. We pray all these things in his wonderful name. Amen.